Good morning, church. All right, a reading from Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who, has ne- who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Thank you, Tibor. Good morning again. My name is Amanda, and I'm one of the pastors here. I hope and I'd like to welcome you this morning. We are in a series that we have called To the Church in New York, and we are diving into Paul's letters to the churches in Ephesus. Paul wrote these to churches with passion and conviction about a myriad of themes that are relevant to us today. And as a church, we need a fresh vision of God's design for how it is we're to operate as the church in the world. As God's design for us who follow Jesus, what are our lives actually supposed to look like? And if you are a Christian, this is of the utmost importance, right? How is it as I look at my schedule and as I recalibrate my daily patterns, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing and knowing to follow Jesus? But if you're someone here who is not a Christian, who is not a believer, maybe not sure what it is you think about Jesus, this is a great opportunity for you to listen in and hear some of kind of the core and the guts of what it is Christians actually believe and why we do. And my prayer is that no matter where you're at, God would meet you right here this morning in this moment. Last week, as we looked at Ephesians 1, we saw how the church is made to function as an extended family. But it's an extended family with a totally different set of values than the rest of the world. As the church, we get to extend forgiveness and grace in a culture of condition. And as a church, we are set apart to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And today, as we continue in Ephesians, we're going to explore functionally how is it that we get to be a blessing to the world? How is it that we do that as a church? And it's through, often, our work. So we're going to be looking and examining our work today. Stats say that people spend only 328 days cumulatively, 328 days cumulative. I can't say that word this morning. <laughs> On average, with friends socializing over the course of a lifetime. So if you're with your friends, it's only 328 days. However, you spend 13 years and two months at work. It's a lot of time, right? Just 
dust, I can't say all the words today. Deprived of meaningful work, men and women lose their reason for existence. Dostoevsky said that. Yep, can't say the words. <laughs> Tim Collins says, and it is very difficult to have a meaningful life without meaningful work. And Paul says it this way. He says, you are a masterpiece in the making, a handiwork. And as a handiwork, you were created for work. Verse 10 states this. It says, for you are God's handiwork, his handiwork created to do good work in which he has had in mind for you before you were even born. So how is it that we engage as a church in meaningful work that allows us to be a blessing to the rest of the world? How will you be able to actually do your best work? Whether you are a parent or a politician or a musician or a teacher, a hedge fund manager, a student, in between jobs, retired, Paul declares that we are created to do a good work that God had in mind for us even before we were born. And it's through this work that we are a blessing to all nations. Many of us, we don't really think about it that much, right? Our work is just tied to a paycheck. I'm just going to get it done to make it to the next day. I know that I have had plenty of seasons in my life where that has been the case. There was a stint at Starbucks. Be nice to your baristas. That's all I have to say. But here, Paul, he talks about this work. He kind of elevates it for us. This isn't just something that's just a paycheck. No, it's more than that. He says, you're you're God's handiwork. And God had something in mind for you to be a part of before you were even born. I believe that Paul is saying that our work and our worth, understanding our worth, are actually intricately tied together. The work that we do when we understand our worth is actually holy. When you understand your worth, It is then that you're able to be a blessing through your work. There is a connection here between the work that we do, whatever sphere we find ourselves in, and how we understand our worth and our identity. So Paul is answering this question, how do I ensure that I'm executing the best of work with the very few hours that I have? How is it that that I do that? What is it that we need to understand in order for the very best work to flow out of our lives? And Paul, I believe, gives us a bit of a roadmap here to get to that understanding. And these are some things that we have potentially forgotten or things that we've never understood in the first place. But but again, this is connecting our worth and our identity into the work and how it is we function in the world. I believe that the best work comes when I am honest about my guilt you may be going, whoa, 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 what does this have to do with work? Why are we talking about guilt? But again, there's a piece of our identity that is connected here to the meaningful work that we do in our life. And verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is not a small statement of sometimes you mess up, but it's not, not a big deal. It's okay. Don't worry about it. No, it says you were dead. You were dead. The consequences of, of your sins, or another way of saying that, is living a life that is apart from and away from God and the way that he has designed for you. It brings death. 
This isn't a small thing. This is a big deal. It's something we need to pay attention to. Paul begins this chunk of his letter by reminding his people, reminding these people that are supposed to be living out the way of Jesus in a major city. You forget. You used to follow the ways of the world. You used to be living in a way that caused death and destruction. Now, this by no means means that the people now that he was writing to in Ephesus were perfect and they had now had everything together. No, that's not the case. But it, as he's reminding them what it is that they were created for, he's saying you need to remember where it is you come from and the consequences of that type of life and the guilt that, that you are guilty of. You don't need to remind something of something and, unless they're forgetting Paul is outlining that before we can get to the good work, before we can get to the works that God has prepared for us, we need to be clear and honest about the mess of our guilt. And the reason that God desperately wants us to be honest about it is because we cannot move forward unless we are honest. If it is true that our sins and our living apart from the way of God brings death, we have to bring to light what that actually is. It's the reason that an addict walks into a room. The only way that an addict can move forward and get help, an alcoholic can get help, is if they first say, I have a problem. They can't move forward unless they first acknowledge and admit that. Why is it we're not honest with our guilt readily and the reality that we live in is often for many of us is we're just too prideful to admit that we're guilty about anything. We blame everyone else. Something goes wrong and we immediately find all the other people who are responsible, right? Or for some of us, we're too afraid that if we go down that path and start being honest, our guilt is going to be too overwhelming. But part of the Christian story and journey Part of being able to live free lives, the lives that God has created us to live, is being able to recognize how big of a mess we're in without Jesus. I know my children, sometimes, every now and then, they do some things that they are guilty of. Not often, of course, right? My kids are doing things all the time that are wrong. And I have one child in particular, I won't name him, but that narrows it down for you, and he has the hardest time admitting his guilt. I'll say, did you see how, you know, you were just so rude to your brother there? Well, no, it was because this, this, and that, and the other thing. No, no, I need you to, I need you to see this because I know that there's no possible way for us to move forward. There's no possible way for him to grow into the young man he needs to be if he can't acknowledge that he's guilty and he's done something wrong and it has consequences. One of the things that we say here so often at Hope is that God loves us so much that he will only meet us where we really are. Not where we wish we were, not where we are pretending to be, but where we really are. And this includes being honest about our guilt. The more that we can be honest about our guilt, the more present to his presence we become. What we learn from scripture is that when we are present to his presence, there is a power and a confidence for us to do Jesus-like things in Jesus-like ways. When we are not present to God's presence, we do nothing. Jesus says in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is a completely different measuring scale, right, than all of our culture. 
Our problem in our busy, driven world and our culture is not that we're not doing things. We're doing a lot of things, right? I know that each one of you, I see some of you come in and you're just so exhausted from all the work that you're doing and the people that you're taking care of. But it means that when we are doing things apart from God's presence, meaning we're not present to his presence, we're not doing anything. And many days it's because we won't stop and be honest about our guilt. We won't come to him and confess. That's why Paul is helping this group of people remember their guilt because they're called to live a very different life. Paul's saying, you are God's masterpiece and he has good work for you to do, but you need to remember and acknowledge your guilt. And it's in there that God will meet you. A necessity of experiencing grace is first the acknowledgement that we need it. You can't experience it. You can't experience grace if you don't think that you need it. It's why the church for centuries has practiced confession. It's why we have come and confessed our sins because it puts us in a posture of understanding our place. It humbles us. It reminds us, oh, Wait, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I don't have this all together. I want to read for you a prayer. So it's a confessional prayer that I have a part of my regular routine. Often in the mornings, this is something, even before I've done anything else, it says, Most merciful God, we confess today that we tend to settle for less, to stop short and sell out. We confess we sin against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and often by what we have left undone. We've not always loved you with our whole heart. We've not always loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. This practice of confession is something that is important as a Christian, to be engaged in on a regular basis, to be coming before God and admitting, I was dead in my transgressions. When we understand our worth, that is when we can be a blessing through our work. The problem is, though, is that we often take our guilt. Once we understand that we are guilty, our guilt, what it is that we do, and we attach it to who we are. But this isn't guilt, this is shame. If guilt is what we do, shame is about who we are. Paul begins this part of his letter talking about guilt, but then he subtly ends it addressing shame. In verse 10 it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is making a declaration there about who God says that we are, not the shame that we feel. So the best work comes when first we're honest about our guilt, but then when we can be free from shame. Paul's reminding us of who we are because he knows if we're not careful, not only will we be honest about our guilt, but we then let that guilt define us. If you can't differentiate from guilt and shame, suddenly you won't simply be honest that you have cheated but you will walk throughout your day with this underlying narrative that you are a cheater. Suddenly you won't be honest about the failures and shortcomings that you've had at work, but you will walk throughout your work day convinced that you are a failure. You won't simply be honest about your disgusting thoughts, but that instead you are disgusting. 
Brene Brown, who researches shame and its effects on people, says this. She says, I believe there's a profound difference between guilt and shame. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against values and feeling psychological discomfort. She says, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Guilt is productive because it helps us recognize, oh, I need something needs to change. But shame is a shackle. It keeps us from being fully present to God, this God who empowers us to do good work. Shame either paralyzes us from the work that God has prepared for us to step into, or it has us constantly striving, busy, trying to prove our self-worth. Another way that I've heard this talked about is something called imposter syndrome. When people are experiencing shame, they often experience this thing called imposter syndrome where they're doing things thinking, if anybody actually finds out who I am. I have a really good friend who is dear. She is wise. She is kind. She gives of herself for other people. She steps in with confidence and authority into some of the most amazing situations one day. And then the next day is so overwhelmed by shame and the feeling of not being good enough that she can't send out an email. She's paralyzed, paralyzed with fear that someone might find out that she's really not worthy. Many of you experience the shackles of shame in this way. You can't possibly step into the good work that God has for you to do and actually be a blessing to the rest of the world in whatever sphere God has placed you in because you are completely stuck and shackled by that kind of shame. For others, this imposter syndrome manifests itself in the opposite way. You're striving. You can't stop. You won't stop. Because if you do, you might not be as good as you're supposed to be. You'll be found out. It still is imposter syndrome. You push past healthy boundaries. You trample over people around you because you don't really believe what God says about you is true. You can't be a blessing to other people through the good work God has for you because you're too consumed with what it is they think about you. Our best work comes when we are honest about our guilt because then we are present to God's presence, but it also comes when we are anchored in the truth that we are not what we do. When we find freedom from shame, we're able to risk to attempt things that only God can accomplish. When we find freedom from shame, we are able to say no to nonstop activity and striving and put our hands only to the things that God wants us to do. Which ultimately brings us to the question, beneath the question, right? Well, how can I differentiate between shame and guilt? Honest about the one and saying no to the other. And that is through having a tangible experience of the grace of God. Verse 4 says this, it says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. When the reality of our guilt collides with the strength of God's grace, we are released from the shackles of shame. When we agree with God about our worth, we are freed to do the good works that he has prepared for us. And it's so simple and yet so complicated, right? To truly believe and allow yourself to experience the type of grace that God has extended to you. The message paraphrase, I love the way that this says that passage from verses four to eight. It says, now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. Acknowledging our guilt but receiving his grace in a way where we don't live shackled by shame. This produces in us, and we talked about it last week, this humble confidence where we're humble because we know we are not the saviors of the world, and yet we have confidence because we know what it is that our creator says about us. We need a tangible experience of God's grace. It's one of the reasons that we come in and we gather together weekly as a church. It's one of the reasons we have community groups meeting all throughout the week so that you can gather with people and be reminded of who God says you are. You can be reminded of your worth so that as you go about your work in this world, it's not just you spinning your wheels, but instead doing the very work that God has prepared for you from before you were born. And that's something to get excited about and something to get up in the morning for. To actually do the work that God has for you, the creator of the world, I would so much rather do that than all the things that the culture tells me I should be doing. What a gift. I encourage you, we've talked about community groups, and I just want to give a little plug for one that's going to actually be talking about faith and work starting on Thursday nights on the Upper East Side. They're going to go through Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. It begins October 3rd. You can register for it at the back or online. But a chance to really dive into, okay, how is it that with all this time I spend with my life in work and my vocation, or maybe even a season where you're in between that or finished with your formal vocation, God, how is it that I can do the work that you have for me? And so today, prior to ending our service with communion, I just want to read over you some passages about how God feels about you some things that he has written in scripture for us to read, for us to consume, to be reminded of when everyone else is saying you are what you do, you are your last mistake or your last success. This is what God says about you. First Peter, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Ephesians 1, he says, just... As he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and without blame before him in love. He predestined you into adoption to be sons and daughters 
by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Matthew, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Paul in Romans says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are statements that we are given about God's never stopping reckless love for us. And all throughout history in the Bible, we have all of these words where God came to the prophets and he said, I want you to tell the people how I feel about them, who I am and who they are in light of that. And then I love it because God said, I'm not just going to give you words. I'm going to show up. I'm going to come and I'm going to put on skin. I'm going to put on flesh and I'm going to enter into this world so that you have no doubt left how I feel about you, how, dram- how dramatically I love you, that you are not to be ashamed, but it doesn't matter how deep your guilt is, I'm coming after you. And Jesus comes and he shows us the full revelation of God, the full picture of the Father's heart for us, He says, I love you so much, you're going to despise me, and still I'm coming after you. I love you so much, you're going to kill me, and still I'm coming after you. And so as we engage in our world through our work, and whatever it is, wherever God has placed you to have a firm grasp of the worth that you have, that Jesus has communicated that Depths, heights, doesn't matter. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. 